0: Winter Nights, Budget Announcements and Liz Truss. When we recorded this classic movie review show, we had no idea that the following weeks would bring such bad news. And of course, the nights are now drawing in, meaning it's darker and colder. So, the AtmaFlix review team have now decided it's time. Yes, time to cheer you up with our fun take on some classic movies. Let's go for it.
1: Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop-shop for movie news, interviews and reviews.
0: As there was a paucity of new films this summer, we have put together a review show packed with classic movies for you.
2: Our reviews include The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Sunset Boulevard and Vertigo.
3: Normal service will be resumed as soon as cinemas start releasing titles worth reviewing again
1: although you can get our thoughts on some of the big releases this summer in the new At The Flicks Rambling series.
4: Rambling is something that could refer to any of your reviews, Jeff. <laughs> Don't forget
0: prejudices as well. Oh, you guys are funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff.
3: I'm Graham. Hi, my name's Neil. I'm Phil. You can find my reviews online at Phil the Bear blog.
4: Hi, I'm Darren and other than at The Flicks. You can follow me on Twitter at desert Loves Movie, and you can read my blogs at halfguarded.com.
1: Welcome to a rather different review show. Now, Darren came up with the idea of a classic review show and the agreed theme was each of us had to pick a pre-1970 film we hadn't seen.
2: Two conditions that were imposed to stop you from picking, thank God, it's Friday again.
1: The other reason the show's been delayed, listeners, is because we had to wait for Neil to finish his campaigning for Liz Truss, which he continued even though they refused to use his campaign slogan of, this is one trust that supports more than a hernia.
2: And you'll be hearing from my lawyers in the morning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Returning to the show
0: and sanity, there is no film news or quiz this month.
3: That's because we're reviewing five films this month instead of the usual four.
2: All are great choices,
3: although I'm convinced Jeff picked a film just
2: to annoy the rest of us. Not Jeff,
3: surely. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see,
0: although my preference is to believe Neil. Anyway, let's start with Phil's selection, The Cabinet of Dr Caligari.
1: A silent German classic made back in 1920 and recently acclaimed by the character, but not the actor, Nicolas Cage, as the greatest movie ever made. Caligari is a story within a story about a young man called Francis, played by Friedrich Fieher, who is telling a companion a very strange tale. Now, years previously, in the small village of Hostenval, Francis lived a happy and normal life. That is until Dr. Caligari, Werner Krauss, came to the town fair with his unusual exhibit, a somnambulist, which is a man in a supposedly perpetual sleep. After their arrival, a series of murders occur in the village. Francis suspects the hand of Caligari and his strange creature behind the evil. But for what purpose? So, Phil, Nick Cage thinks this is amazing. What about you? Do you think this movie is kick-ass or just snake-eyes? Yeah.
3: So, it was actually Nick Cage and the Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent that inspired me to pick this film. And I'm really glad that I did. I think anyone who's interested in film should absolutely watch this. And my kind of two cents on that is that you can jump out and get that on DVD, but it's also available for free because it's in the public domain. So, a few top tips if you're going to try and watch this on YouTube or somewhere else, you definitely need the German intertitle cards nothing dubbed obviously you need your own subtitles go for a soundtrack and an image restoration that's faithful i found a really really terrible version that had kind of like an 80s synth soundtrack and actors had dubbed over voices so you didn't have any subtitles it made the film shorter like from a running time point of view but uh it was awful (laughs) don't do that to yourself or like jeff i think just bought the dvd right because i did um, You can get some really good classic restorations on the DVD. It's only 77 minutes long. It features the creation of horror movie tropes that lots and lots of films since then have borrowed from. It's got amazing makeup choices. When I was looking at the actors after the film, I discovered that the guy who played Caligari was actually only 35 years old when he filmed that. He looks like 60 plus in the film. It's brilliant. And Cesar who is the somnambulist, which is also a word I had to look up. I'm sure it was in Common Usage in 1920. The way he looked was really amazing. I'm fairly certain that you may well, when you see him, go, oh, I've seen that before, because it's the sort of image that I've somehow picked up through osmosis from other areas, because when I saw him, it was really vividly sort of, you know, came back to me. It's got brilliant painted sets, which have got jagged edges and expressionist features. It's got a subtext on World War I and on mental health. And I'm 100% certain that Tim Burton is a big fan. I really enjoyed it. It's obviously over 100 years old, and it has its quirks from the time. But I really think you should give it a go. Do
1: you want a bit of trivia about the actor that played Cesar?
4: No.
3: <laughs> well, i have
1: been trouble with Darren tonight, but yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure he'll not
4: drunk up, enough like. yet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Conrad Veidt played him. He his last performance was the lead Nazi in Casablanca.
2: Really?
3: Okay. Yeah.
2: Good grief.
1: Yeah. That's my bit of trivia. I do hope that met with Darren's approval. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> having, having, having now done that, I shall pass over to Graham.
0: Uh, I'm going to come clean on this review and state that I've gone through a lot of soul searching on this film. I really don't get why people call this a masterpiece or one of the greatest films of the silent era, or in the case of Nick Cage, the greatest film of all time. I'm definitely on the Paddington 2 side of this argument. (laughs) I understand intellectually that this is an important film and maybe even groundbreaking for the time. But from 2022, it's more of a historical cinematic curiosity than a great film. I understand that this was the first widely released film showing off the ideas of the German expressionist cinema movement. And as such was quite shocking at the time. Part of me loves the fact that the impact of this film has rippled through time for a hundred years and is still being discussed today. I think I need to watch a few more YouTube documentaries on this film before I can begin to truly appreciate it. The story itself is okay. Maybe at the time it was shocking with this twist at the end. The scenery is strange and was one of the two things I really liked about the film. The other thing being the music. The scenery does evoke a sense of unease and maybe 100 years ago it caused dread like the strange carpet at the Overlook Hotel in The Shining does today. But the standout for me was the music. It's absolutely wonderful. I watched the version with the original score, which is just a piano, which is weird, dynamic, and, and so interesting for a pianist that I've actually downloaded some of the score, I've got some of the score here, and it's really, really odd, lots of strange things happening in the score as well. I found the music actually was a better guide to what was happening in the film than the intertitle cards, hmm. which popped up with the regularity of London buses and made the process of watching the film a stuttering affair, rather than the normal cinematic flow. Um, call me a philistine if you like, but You're a philistine. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, but this was more of a history project than a film-watching experience. I'm not giving up. I'm going to do some more research. But my first two views did not inspire me. I did watch it twice because I thought, what am I missing?
3: I think that's a fair point of view because there's another film that we're going to talk about where I have a very similar opinion, where it feels like it's a a history project. Mm. You've got to watch it because it's important rather than I actually enjoyed it.
1: Interesting comment so far. Neil?
2: Well, I watched the version on YouTube, and what a great film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm sure others will be able to point to the influence it had on future filmmakers and horror films in general. But for me, the music stood out. As Graham said, discordant, very strange, in keeping with the rest of the film. And likewise, the scenery, everything designed to keep you from feeling comfortable, the German expressionism. The actors are emoting hugely, as was the style in silent films, more of that in Sunset Boulevard, with Dr. Caligari himself presenting an almost Punch and Judy style caricature of a human being. But apart from that small irritation, the film works. It's creepy, unsettling, and very, very clever. The ending was a shock. Of course, it. Um, this is a, and in case you actually want to watch it for the first time, this is a spoiler. Uh, it finishes in a mental. Institution as the comment on World War One and the huge numbers of soldiers returning with PTSD and worse. Ah, oh, excellent choice, Phil. Well done.
1: That's interesting. I'll pick up with you when I go through my review because I see it slightly different on the World mm. War One thing. But I'll pick up on that after Darren has um, had, had his say on this.
4: I was just completely entranced by this film. Um, I actually do wonder if the reason is because I haven't seen a lot of films from this era or or to be honest, silent movies in general. I mean, the only films I can think of at the top of my head are Metropolis, Birth of a Nation and The Crowd. This is probably why I was taken so much by this film. To me, it felt completely fresh and unique and something that I'd really not seen very much of. I mean, the the things I enjoyed about it, were the, the sets and the, the scenery I mean some of, some of the scenes where you've got jagged edges of buildings and like forest and things and it looks like a stage play but at times and the whole nightmare scene of it and it just felt like a real curiosity for for me the story was really monstrous it was disturbing, chilling I, I think what watching it it felt less like I was watching a film and more like I was sat in art gallery and watching like a a live motion piece. They're the things that I found um, interesting about it. In fact, it was so different. It was just something um, amazing to um, to, to look at. I I don't know if I actually read about this film before because the the twist ending I, I actually saw coming from very early on. And I'm normally not that good at spotting these things, so I, th- I think I've subconsciously like heard about the twist beforehand. Although to be honest, I was really surprised of of what the Caligari actually is when you get to it in the end. That bit I, I wasn't expecting, but it it's, it's one that I would never have actually got gone out to to watch. But I, I really enjoyed it. But it, like I say, it, it didn't feel like afterwards. that I'd like watched the movie. It felt like I'd been to sat watching like a, a piece of art. I was entertaining, absolutely. Loved the spectacle of it all.
1: I think the art comment there is really telling. I think that's Mm. perhaps the way we should start looking at silent films today, as opposed to try and see them as story and film in general. Mm. I'm going to pick up on a couple of points that everybody said, because I had three difficulties in reviewing this film. I'd seen this film over 40 years ago, so I was coming back to it now. And I think with this film being over 100 years old, It's storytelling and cinema techniques are very different back then to what we have now. Obviously, it's a silent film, which means the acting is non-naturalistic. And, of course, there are subtitles. And like many landmark films, and you've all said this about sort of horror films in general, it creates tropes which are now expected from the genre. And the example I used in my notes when I put this together was John Ford's Stagecoach. It's a great Western But if you go back and watch it now for the first time, you think, well, I've seen all this in other Westerns. That's because it invented those tropes, but you're going back in time to watch it. And that applies equally to Caligari. The most critical thing I would say about this is because of our modern expectations, it's boring in places. And Graham, you picked up on this. It's because of those subtitles, the film stops and starts. But there's still a tremendous power within it. Conrad Veidt's first appearance as Caesar is eerie and unforgettable. The overwhite pallor, the extended eyelashes that flicker like some gross spider, which repulses me anyway, uh, as he opens his eyes and his zombie-like demeanour combine to make the most striking image of a visually arresting film. I think he's so good and understated his performance almost transcends the limits of silent cinema, which none of the actors were able to do because they were working in a more theatrical approach to it. You've also mentioned the sets. They're very pantomime-like, jagged, stark and austere, like the story. But interesting, what we talked about, the wraparound, and Neil, you mentioned about World War I. Now, the original script Hans Zanowicz and Karl Meyer, told their tale without the prologue and epilogue, so the mental institution didn't feature. Now, that puts the ah. whole new perspective on the story. It means that Caligari is a real, not imagined villain. Their intent was a comment on World War I, which, of course, had recently finished, where crazed people in authority sent people like Cesar off to die for no reason. However, the studio, when they had the script and rewrote it, added the wraparound bit. And that, in one way, undermines the writers, but in another way makes it much more accessible to a modern audience. And I'll I'll use the example, I watched a film with my wife. And after the film, she remarked that the film showed the stigma of mental illness at the time, which probably wasn't its original intention, but has grown into it. And I thought that was quite revealing. Let's finish with a comment on the sets as a statement of expressionism. That's his real legacy. It created something so artificial, a world where you can believe anything can happen. And that expressionism was used to astonishing effect in the 1930s in America for the Universal Horror Film series, which started, of course, with Dracula and then Frankenstein. So in a sense, Caligari gave birth to the horror film as we understand it, although that term didn't exist in the 1920s. Overall, Caligari is antiquated movie making, which a couple of scenes apart does not have the power to shock as it did on first release yet it remains a great example of expressionistic cinema and one that deserves to be seen by all serious followers of cinema. That's my wrap-up.
3: Is it interesting that you're saying studio interference created the twist?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I th- they'd sold the script. They wanted to do one thing, the studio wanted to do another. It wasn't so much that... I mean, I mean, they'd sold the script on and it, and it went through a number of iterations what the original writers thought about it, I couldn't find any comment on whether they were displeased with it. I have no idea.
3: I can't oh, yeah, imagine yeah. writers got too much of a say back in the 1920s. Well, no, no.
2: Hitler was rising to power. He'd have shot them. That was the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari, a horror film. I had no trouble watching. Graham, did you find it scary when you went to the premiere? Moving on, the next classic is the one I selected, Sunset Boulevard.
1: Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance, Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party, who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones like Cecil B. DeMille.
4: All those who knew
1: Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path.
0: Billy Wilder's biting satire on Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard, was made in 1950 and remains one of the most acclaimed films about the nastiness of the movie business. Like Dr. Caligari, this film is told in flashbacks, after we see the police arrive at a Hollywood mansion to find a body floating in the swimming pool. The body is that of aspiring screenwriter Joe Gillis, played by William Holden. He has been a struggling writer for a long time, unable to get work and about to give it all up and return to his hometown when he stumbles upon this rundown Hollywood mansion. The mansion is owned by former star of The Silent Screen, Norma Desmond played by Gloria Swanson, where she lives with her butler Max, played by former film director Eric von Stoheim. Gillis sees an opportunity to take advantage of this very strange couple, a decision that will lead to the ultimate demise which opened the movie. So, Neil... What was it about this film populated by strange, old, out-of-touch individuals that first attracted you? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Very good crime. So Biting Satire, though, pretty much sums up the film. Uh, people in Hollywood were horrified when it first came out. That one of their own had exposed the lie that is Hollywood. And I think in, like Dr. Caligari, it's a historical piece of art I think is the uh, is the way to sum it up. Uh, apparently, Louis B. Mayer of MGM wrote to Billy Wilder, "You befouled your own nest. You should be kicked out of the country. You goddamn foreigner, son of a bitch." They didn't like it. Wilder and his team only released a few pages of the script at any one time to the Paramount executives to ensure no one knew about the true meaning or were able to insist on changes. Mary Pickford was offered the role of Norma Desmond. She was horrified when she read the script and said that she couldn't do it. Greta Garbo too, and Norma Shearer. And the script is key to the success of Sunset Boulevard. Director Billy Wilder used his experiences as a writer to add all the frustrations and concerns at how writers were treated. Six years before, he'd written Double Indemnity with Raymond Chandler, who was then a keen newcomer. The roles of Gillis and Schaefer reflect that partnership. Wilder's despair that Hollywood, while rejecting formulaic stories, also rejected truly original ones too, an impossible demand and indicative of the lack of respect for writers, or indeed any other part of the movie process. Wilder makes sure the guys at the gate get a look in and the lighting person who put Norma back into the spotlight for a brief moment. Nancy Olsen as Betty Schaefer has a key role as the foil to Norma Desmond's delusions. She's adaptable, and when she fails to become an actress, she accepts the fact and moves on. The Hollywood writing process is laid bare as Gillis and Schaefer discuss their story. I'll just throw out all the psychology of the killer, uh, says Schaefer, but psychopaths are like hotcakes, retorts Gillis. But ultimately, cinema at the time was all about the sale of vanity. Gloria Swanson is perfect for the role as a silent star has been abandoned when she got old, refusing to believe that she was finished, refusing to hear the truth. Even watching in 2022, the treatment of Norma is less than subtle dig as some of her own attitudes toward older actresses. Just look at the covers of the glossy magazines, not those ones, Jeff.
1: Oh, can I have one back, please, Neil?
2: (laughs) Very good. Older actresses looking way younger than they are, having to do what Norma has to go through to cheat the ageing process. And our attitudes change towards Norma as the film progresses. She's delusional at the beginning, but we slowly appreciate she's a product of Hollywood. As Cecil B. DeMille himself says, you know, a dozen press agents working overtime can do terrible things to the human spirit. The waxworks Norma's bridge partners are former silent movie stars and include the great Buster Keaton. Eric von Stroheim, himself a writer and director, is wonderful as the devoted butler feeding Norma's delusions. Wilder believed that Hollywood should be devoted to good stories, and boy was he successful with this one. A great story, well-developed characters, and an iconic beginning and ending.
1: Do you want an interesting fact?
2: Go on. (laughs) I'm waiting for Darren to say no
4: first. You're going to anyway, so you might as well.
1: (laughs) There was a a wonderful play. You mentioned Double Indemnity. It was a wonderful Radio 4 play of a few years ago where Patrick Stewart played Raymond Chandler, and it was about the writing process on Double Indemnity, which was Mm. a, a nightmare. If you can track it down, it's well worth listening to. Yeah. You liked it. What about you, Phil?
3: Well, so you know what Graham said about the last film? (laughs) 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 So I'm really sad to say I was disappointed. I, I have wanted to watch this for a long time and I thought I would enjoy it. But this was my history lesson film. I didn't enjoy it. I really struggled. So let's talk about what I did like. I really, really loved Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond she's absolutely brilliant her performance strikes me as one that's really brave it could easily have come across as over the top and fallen flat but her ability to behave as if she's still in a silent movie for which she was famous for was brilliant and she gets to deliver two of the most indelible lines in film history which again i was well aware of before i even watched this film my favorite is i am big it's the pictures that got small. I thought. I just think that's brilliant the way she delivers it. I think from what I was reading about, she's almost to some extent playing her own sort of career arc as well, because she was a silent star who sort of fell away when talkies came out. My biggest issue with the film, what I couldn't just stop me from getting into it at all, was two issues around William Holden. He's lumbered with this persistent narration. And I just found it to be really flat and really distracting. I just didn't want telling me what was going on. I just found it frustrating. And I didn't think that he had any chemistry with either of his leads. So there were two you know, distinct relationships he had with the, the woman that he was writing with. Did you say it's Betty Schaefer? Schaefer. Schaefer. Betty Schaefer. Um, so he had a very distinct relationship with her where it was kind of like he was becoming interested. but was wary and he obviously had the other relationship with Norman Desmond where he initially, it was kind of the opposite, where he initially was sort of sort of pushed away and then kind of sort of actually became comfortable in it. But I didn't feel like he had any real chemistry with either of those actresses. I'm definitely putting it in the it's one to respect and admire category rather than the one to return to. I would say that if you are going to watch it, and I'm sure that, you know, you will enjoy it. There's lots of people who enjoy it. But I think that if you can find out something about the era, the silent industry, those actors and actresses, the real people, Cecil B. DeMille and everything that are in there, I think you're going to get more out of it. I'm completely up for a remake starring Gillian Anderson in the um, silent actress role. I think she'd be great. And then we can get Ryan Gosling as a much better narrator. Oh, and we can have we can have Ralph Fiennes as the butler and yep. Emma Stone as the other uh, writer.
1: Well, three out of four ain't bad, I suppose. <laughs> How do you rate American Beauty, which is a film that uses this structure and its narration? And, and clearly it's a homage to this film.
3: So I haven't seen it since probably a couple of years after it came out in the cinema. But I really enjoyed that film. Uh, I really liked it. So I haven't seen it for ooh, a good decade, I would have thought, maybe longer, but I think, I, I yeah, I pro- I'd much rather watch that over this.
1: Okay. Maybe we can get Kev onto the podcast. He ain't doing much these days. Oh. Um, Graham? Oh, 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 oh. So watching
0: this film from the vantage point of the 21st century was a curious couple of hours. Technically, for the time, it's a brilliant film that noir colour palette is mesmerising. The scenery's perfect. The score was magnificent. Hollywood at the time was a brutal place for female stars who were discarded as soon as they reached middle age, just like Leonardo's DiCaprio's strict 25-year-old used by date. Women were products, and then when they reached a certain age, they were assigned to the scrapping. Roger Ebert described the movie as Hollywood at its worst, told by Hollywood at its best. And who am I to disagree with, Roger? And I think that captures it. It's, I thought the two leads were stunning, Phil. I thought William Holden was just living the role and carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. It really felt like no acting required. This is just me. Uh, But the standout, definitely Gloria Swanson. In this film, she inhabits the body of a woman with some serious mental health issues. Not for a moment does she stop being in character. The face says it all. She overacts as if she was in a silent movie with exaggerated hand gestures and body movements. She constantly exudes the sense for woman where something's not quite right. She is too happy and too sad, and her emotions seem to be on a hair trigger all the time. The ballroom scene where she dances the tango with Holden is so clever. Instead of the proud woman leading the man around the dance floor, she clings to Holden in a desperate grabbing, clutching embrace as if she wants to hold on to her lost youth. And uh, Rudolf Valentino, who taught her the dance. If I have a quibble with the film, it's the notion that a woman has to be crazy to love a younger man. But the film was made in the 1940s, and I assume people just accepted that as just another prejudice to add to the multitudes of others they held at the time. Again, I am so grateful to the podcast to give me the push and motivation to watch this wonderful movie. Things I loved about this movie, let's go. The film's dark, shadowy, black-and-white film, and the cinematography, thought that was great. The dead bonobo and the burial oh, scene. <laughs> the absolute deadpan of Eric von Swanheim as the butler. A just was brilliant. The score, particularly the theme of Norma Desmond being based on tango music with a minor key, reflecting the brooding and serious problems in her life. And the whole weirdness of the house, it almost had a monsters feel to it. The car also gave off that monsters vibe. Nice one. I was expecting to see this movie only as a historical curiosity, but I ended up
4: loving it, actually. I was well happy at the end of this. Okay. Darren? I've never actually seen this film, but I know of the opening and everything, because it's one of those things which is just so iconic. It's been recreated and referenced and and parodied ad nauseum. So I was actually intrigued about you know what, what the film was actually about. And I have to say, I was slightly disappointed with my experience with it because it wasn't a film that I enjoyed, but it is one that I, I more appreciated and I found really interesting. And the sad thing about it is, as a film fan... I really wish that I had actually loved this because I love films about films and about the movie industry. I find that stuff so fascinating. And with this being a film about the realities of Hollywood, it is one that I really wanted to enjoy. And and the thing is, there is so much good stuff in this film and, and stuff that relates to today. I find it absolutely fascinating that a film was actually made by a studio in the early fifties because it is such an absolute indictment of Hollywood and the way it uses and spits out its performers and creators, you know how it abuses them, pushes them aside when when they serve a purpose, and also a sort of critique on those actual performers themselves, their obsession with fame, clinging on to Hollywood for all they are worth. I can't imagine the ways that this would have caused at the time. Like I said, it doesn't feel like a, a 50s-style film. It's got that sort of mentality of more of a 70s film, that sort of like that counterculture thing. Of it. I mean, the fact that in this film there was like shots of the Paramount lot and, and everything, it, it reminded me sort of like of the player in, in some respects and really ahead of its time. Although I found it like, you know, really interesting and th- the film felt so... Totally grim the whole way through, and I, I know it was suitably so, but I, I just didn't find that made it a compelling film to watch. And, and, and one of the things that I, I think that I I really sort of lost patience with is, is the main character. I found really really dull. I really loved the Gloria Swanson side of it, you know. And whenever she was off screen, I was waiting for it to come back to her because I found her her character just absolutely fascinating. Her ex husband being a minder or, or butler, as it was the fact that he was writing all her fan letter just to sort to of keep her happy, things like that, and the whole plastic surgery and things. there were just just so many things in there that I just found absolutely sort of compelling. I didn't enjoy the experience of watching this film. I found it a, a bit of a, a slog at times. I, I think the, the the whole sort of crimey type, um, you know, subplot. I I, I just I just you know didn't really you know get into so uh, again it's a film it, it's a it's a film that i found fascinating that it was actually ever made at the time it was I mean, it was allowed to be made it was almost you know but you know as, as enjoying film um no it, it's not one that i ever really sort of think i'll ever see again it just didn't sort of it, it wasn't an enjoyable experience for me
1: okay so one thing you mentioned there, and others have mentioned it as well, is that they don't like William Holden's character. And I'm interested in the point you make that Gloria Swanson, yes, she's over the top, but yes, she's entertaining, yes, she's exciting. Do you think the flamboyance of her character makes William Holden just dull in comparison?
4: Yeah, I think that's it. There's a lot more interesting thing that's going on with her. His whole thing is that he's a failed writer. And that he's taking her for, for granted. But that's you know, he he doesn't there's not really a lot of sort of you know character in that. But to me, he wasn't even a good villain or a good scoundrel or had any sort of colour about him. She she obviously stole the show and everything, but she had the she had the, the sort of story that I found fascinating about sort of, you know, the aging star. It's it's kinda of like the um bet Davis in um uh, All About Eve, you know, that sort of film, or um or uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She was a lot more entertaining than, you know, and the fact that she was obviously going cuckoo, you know, you you had that sort of that like, you know sort of you know what is she going to do next, you know, is you know is she, that 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 stuff I found really interesting. And by comparison, I thought I found his story just was re- really dull.
3: I was going to ask, is that the most Darren and I have ever agreed on a film review?
4: <laughs> I think it might be a
2: record.
3: Might well be, yeah,
1: uh... probably. Yeah, you could almost overlay it. So- so, needless to say, I'm going to disagree with you.
3: Um,
1: <laughs> I actually I do love the movie. And, I mean, part of it for me is, I mean, many years ago, I went to an exhibition about cinema production design. And as I walked into the event, I saw that everybody was looking up. And I looked up, and the ceiling had been turned into that famous shot of the camera looking up from the bottom of the swimming pool as we see the body of Joe Gillis floating above us. You've got that shot at the beginning. You've got Franz Waxman almost physical punch of an opening with his music and the immediacy of Billy Wilder's direction. It brings me straight into the movie and I just love it from there on. And I'm a huge fan of Wilder. Some of his later films didn't quite work, but generally he is just one of the best directors there's ever been. So to me, it's a genuine classic and probably the best film ever made about the pernicious life that is the movie community and And, picking up the points you've all made, it is essentially about fame. Everybody in this film will do anything for it. I mean, Norma Desmond is the classic case. she plays it with the exaggerated gestures, but you can see what it's done to her. It's as Darren said, you know it's driven her insane, essentially. She believes she can recapture that fame. Joe Gillis, and I would disagree again with you. I think nobody can do cynicism like William Holden. He, he was, again, brilliant in his next film for Wilder, Alex 17, playing another cynical character. He can't find fame through honest screenwriting, so he becomes a male prostitute. Even Betty Schaefer, Nancy Olsen, was never better than in this film. She had plastic surgery as she tried to become an actress to make her profile better but then went to write him and that didn't work. So fame is shown as destructive and only Cecil B. DeMille seems to be above it and that's probably because he threatened them all. Overall, Sunset Boulevard is an acid attack on the movie industry. And I think to make it more striking, and again, this has been alluded to, it was filmed in the style of a horror movie. So within this format, Wilder is able to give free expression and exaggeration to all his hates in the movie business. He was a writer, as Neil said, and lines like audiences don't know somebody sits down and writes a picture they think the actors make it up as they go along which reflected his view all through his career and again as neil said a lot of the famous people around at the time just hated the film they knew what was coming they just didn't want to have anything to do with it and the film went into production without a finished script partly for the reason that Neil said earlier. You know, they they didn't want to have something complete that people were going to try and shut down. Although, at that time, uh, I'm sure that uh, Billy Wilder could have filmed the phone book. He was that successful. And they had problems with the actors. Montgomery Cliff was first cast, but uh, get this one. He was living with an older actress, and he didn't want people to draw the parallels. So he dropped (laughs) Holden was cast, and Wilder... I'd never met Holden, but he took an instant dislike to him. But yet when they met up, they made a number of films together. They got on so well. It was stunning in that regard. The end result is a masterpiece, I would say, that must be seen by anybody who has an interest in cinema. And I think, you know, is this film relevant today? And for me, the answers are resounding yes. The corruption of fame is more prevalent than ever in our media-soaked age, uh, especially that desire to stay young through diet and surgery. If anything, what Wilder's done is create a prediction. Now, if you like this, or even if you didn't, I would suggest two things to you. Billy Wilder's 1978 film, Fedora, like Sunset Boulevard, that starts with the death on screen of a a major character, and the rest is told in flashback. Uh, Again, the film stars William Holden, it's a much more gentle and not as bitter film as Sunset Boulevard, although it does have a kicker twist about two-thirds of the way through. And also an early Twilight Zone episode called 16mm Shrine, which plays on this, Ida Lupino stars and directed that episode, which is very unusual for a woman directing in TV at that time. Very similar theme, and Franz Waxman again did a knockout music score.
2: And the slightly different ending was, I, I think, was very interesting on that one. I'm not going and to give the it away. The yeah, yeah, it was, yeah,
1: it was, yeah interesting yeah. where they took that. So, two final comments, and I'll, I'll wrap up and hand back to you. Uh, my wife thought the film had a horrible ending, as she'd hoped the young couple would go off together. And I had to remind her, you saw Bloody Holden dead at the beginning of the film, so it was very unlikely, wasn't it? <laughs> and when I first saw the movie back in the '70s, I was revolted by. Holden's gigolo antics with this ancient film star. From my age, she looks fit now.
2: Well, she's, a, <laughs> she, she's a seriously younger actress now, isn't she? For you. Yes, yeah.
1: yeah. uh,
4: absolutely.
2: So those were our thoughts on Sunset Boulevard. Please let us know your views.
4: Coming later in the show are our reviews of Vertigo and My Fair Lady. But next up is Graham's choice, Inherent the Wind. That old time
1: For our science lesson for today, we will continue our discussion of Darwin's
0: theory of the descent of man. Give me that old-time
1: religion You're charged
4: with violation of the state code, which makes it unlawful for any teacher of the public schools to teach any theory that denies the creation of man as taught in the Bible.
1: Give me that old-time religion
4: Matthew, Harrison, Brady, volunteers to prosecute in monkey trial.
3: The Lord has sent us his right hand.
4: These priests of evolution, they are lost, my friends. I disagree. My paper is happy to announce that it is sending Henry Drummond. It's good enough for me. After all these years, we find ourselves on the opposite
2: side of an issue. Well, that's evolution for you. After last month's Father Stew review, Graham once again sticks with religion for Inherit the Wind, which was first released in 1960. It's based loosely on the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. A teacher, Bertram Cates, played by the future Bewitched star, Dick York, is arrested for teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. The small southern town in which he lives suddenly becomes a national focus as the trial nears. Both sides of the case have attracted some legal heavy hitters. Prosecuting Cates is a lawyer who has previously been a presidential candidate, Matthew Brady, played by Frederick March. Defending counsel is one of America's most controversial legal minds, Henry Drummond, played by Spencer Tracy. One thing is for certain, the outcome of this trial will have a profound effect on America. Graham, are you Team Brody or Team Truman?
0: Br- <laughs> ah, I think that's pretty obvious. A good question. Yeah, Team yeah. Brody. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm Spencer Tracy's boy all the way. Yeah. Uh, uh, the key point of this film for me was that Inherit the Wind is a parable that f- uh, fictionalizes the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial, as we just said but it's as a means to discuss McCarthyism in the 1950s. It's written in response to the chilling effect of McCarthy-era investigations on intellectual discourse. The film, like the play, is critical of creationism. And the tone of this film, which I'd never seen before, and I keep meaning to watch it, and again, I'm grateful that I got the chance to watch it this time, the tone is often very heavy-handed, and on the nose, I must admit, as a viewer in 2022, I got the points in the first five minutes. <laughs> However, the issue of scientific ignorance is still with us. The court romantics in the film to remove truth and supplant it with mythology c- could be the Supreme Court's ruling of Roe v. Wade. The thing that I loved was that even back in the 1920s, the children of the Enlightenment were beating down the forces of darkness and ignorance, pushed by the Christian Taliban at the time.
1: bit harsh, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've decided I'm giving up on being polite to, um, to sort of pacify other people's ignorances, Jeff. Oh. I'm just going <laughs> to say it like it is. I'm getting old, I'm getting grumpy, I'm becoming a curmudgeon.
2: Getting? <laughs> Steady <laughs> well, on, <better>. mate. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, This is a great little film, and I loved every minute of it. It was It was so good, I watched it twice. In this review, I'm trying my hardest to be objective, but I might start gushing at any time. It's a courtroom drama, and I love those. The pacing is very brisk, and we move to the central courtroom drama in just under 30 minutes. The courtroom is a place of chaos, with people shouting out, and camera and radio reporters broadcasting live from the right in front of the judge, there's one hilarious scene where Gene Kelly is phoning in his story to his newspaper during the proceedings. Having watched the Lincoln Lawyer show on Netflix a couple of weeks ago, they seem to have tightened up the core procedures in the last <laughs> hundred years. <laughs> the great Spencer Tracy defines the word curmudgeon. Jeff, you've got a lot to learn from this man.
1: <laughs> I'm trying.
0: Gene Kelly is recognisably, unrecognisable as uh, E.K. Hornbeck of the Baltimore Herald, which is situated between Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. Oh, I wonder why it was Baltimore, which is between the seat of government and the birthplace of the United States. Oh, is that a coincidence? Yeah, this movie is as relevant today as it was back in the early 60s. The world has moved on, but some people are desperately clinging to the
4: past. Darren, you're up now. Right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of interesting um, trivia about this film. Um, Dick York in this film was on Bewitched as a character called Darren, and uh, that's how I got my name. It's a
3: right.
4: Good grief. Yeah, but Bewitched popularised the name Darren. It hadn't been heard in many places before that, and so that's how I ended up with with this name I've got here, which is rather unfortunate because I can't pronounce ours very well, so that screwed me for life. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway um i've got to say i had never actually heard of this film and i'm I'm so glad that this was chosen because i enjoyed it a, a really lot and um, the thing about it was it had a really good old-school way of recreating an important real-life event dramatizing it and making it really really entertaining not just the fact that the, the case was compelling and and all the performances and everything, and the fact that there was a a meaning to this film that is you can subscribe to events of any era, which I'll I'll get to in a minute, but the fact is that that the characters were absolutely entertaining and colourful, and there was some absolutely wonderful and great dialogue and, and some really witty moments. I mean, most of it was by Gene Kelly, like right, there's a, there's a moment in the film where um, a, a chimp has been brought along by the, uh, some anti Darwinists. And he actually went up to the chimp and asked if he, if he was there for the defence or the prosecution. He made a line about um, Brady saying that he was a man who could grandstand while sitting down. There were lots of these little, you know, little yeah, That was
0: a great line. Great line.
4: It was funny and lighthearted as, as you go along and and the arguments that you saw in the courthouse and all the scenes there were really really compelling they did feel very really stagey and and not sort of not realistic but if, if anyone's ever watched one of these like trials in, in real life court cases that look as boring as hell in real life so you have to big them up a bit but yeah i i, I thought it was absolutely uh wonderful and and edge of edge of your Stuff. um There was also some really nice moments of real tenderness and poignancy. I mean, the scenes I really like was when the two lawyers were sat in a post and, and they're reminiscing about the time that they were friends and how they'd grown into this this conflict because they had these disagreements. And there were some really, really good heart to heart moments. I mean, there was a little debate they had about sort of um, religion. And then um, you know, the, the argument being like, you know, is it really that bad if it to, if people use it for hope? If it if it gives them something to like, aspire to, even if it's something which is wrong and little things like that. There's just some interesting things in there. I think as as you've already mentioned, the um, even though this was set in the twenties, uh, uh, about the monkey trial, it was actually a film about McCarthyism, which which I really like because it's actually really subversive. I in the same way that a film like High Noon is that, you know, Hollywood were having these little critiques and getting them, you know, I, I love that kind of th- thing that goes on. But I think that even though it was about McCarthyism, it's a sort of film that 70 years later still feels relevant. Aside from the fact that evolution and creationism are still two things that are sort of discussed, which is, is, you know, completely baffling. All you have to do is look at the, um, you know, because this is film about sort of, uh, you know, witch hunts and sort of like, you know, attacking free thought and trying to silence people. And I'm not going to go into specifics, but just look on social media and and the sort of outrages you'll get when people, when your figures will say things at people, whether right or wrongly. Don't, you know, don't like and and I think it's if anyone ever watched the new Battlestar Galactica TV show, the the modern line, but there's a there's a theme that goes through this through the series all the time which was uh, what has happened before will happen again and, and that's what you get here. You know, you can see things which are, are relevant about the battle for free speech and the right to think. You, you know, which which are in, in these films. So I, I thought this was absolutely fabulous and I thought this was an excellent choice. And just a a really entertaining um, you know an entertaining courtroom drama and and just a lot of meaning to it and and totally gripping excellent
1: i like the fact you mentioned the porch you know when they're on the mm. rocking chairs normally when you get two people on rocking chairs they're in sync but even then mm. they were completely at opposite I, ends uh, when one, yeah. was yeah. forward, one was going forward one the other one was back yeah. and i thought that was again a really clever statement it must have been awkward to film because you naturally want to get into sync yeah mm. But no, good review. And for me, one of the joys of revisiting Inherit the Wind is to see a film by Stanley Kramer. Now, he was at the top of his game in the 60s, looking at social topics and such films as On the Beach, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Uh, He's largely forgotten today, and I'm hoping through this review we might want to go back and have a look at some more of Mr. Kramer's work because it's definitely well worth reappraising. As for this film, as you've all said, it's based on a true story. And it's a courtroom drama, which can be static and slow, but it doesn't happen here. And I think, and again, go back to Mr. Kramer, his use of tracking shots during the courtroom sequences give you a sense of movement you wouldn't normally get. And certainly, you know, this is based on the play, so you wouldn't have that. And he uses techniques that are much more used today than they were then, which takes it out of period and makes it feel a more modern film. And I think he has some brilliant framing shots. And, and for me, the introduction of Gene Kelly's character Hornbeck, he's introduced like a lurking present in the foreground with the two young lovers in the background automatically stating he's going to be a big influence in their lives, at least for a while. And then, of course, you have the two great performances from Tracy and March, who are just absolutely amazing. And you have Tracy who underplays his role, and he's based it on real life lawyer Clarence Darrow, while Frederick March plays William Jennings Bryan in real life, who really did try three times to become president. So that character, although slightly fictionalized, is based on a real person. And he goes over the top. But then, you know, like Norma Desmond in um, Sunset Boulevard, you know, she's acting as a silent movie star. He's acting as the politician. So he goes way, way over the top. But I think Gene Kelly gives his finest screen performance in any movie in this film. And I Can't Sing in the Rain is one of the best films ever made. The cynical journalist with some just brilliant lines, and you've all called them out, so I don't need to repeat them. They are just so good. And because these performances are so good, I think the flaw in the film is a lot of the other performances and characterizations are just not in the same league. Dick York and Rachel Anderson play the young couple, and they're just bland. And, in fact, Rachel Anderson's uh, story fades out. Then you've got Florence uh, Eldridge, who is March's real-life wife. She appears as his wife in this film, and she just appears to be reading her notes from off screen. Thankfully, they're not on screen for too long, so it focuses on the heavyweights. And then, when it's not focusing on them, it deals with the paranoia that's gripped the town. There's that constant threat of lynching that comes up, so we do not see too many black performance on screen, particularly not at that time. And that wasn't meant as humour. That is what it was really like. Uh, so that atmosphere is wonderfully caught. Cool. It does at times, to me anyway, played like a classic Twilight Zone episode. But that's not surprising as the set they filmed it on was used for many famous episodes of the Twilight Zone. So one element I want to pick up on is the uh, context of th- what was going on with the Scopes Monkey Trial at the time. At that time, the religious right had a tremendous amount of power. Prohibition was a force. Bryan, ironically, was one of the orchestrators of that uh, about 1918, 1919. And these people were appalled by what they saw as a society falling apart. The Jazz Age, the scandals of Hollywood, such as Fatty Arbuckle, and, of course, the ongoing teachings of Darwinism. That's why this film has so much relevance today, because some of the same attempts to remove teachings of thoughts are with us. The scholar who believes in the film, that the Bible says the earth is only 6,000 years old, and there's a line in the film, we don't need experts, eh? Where are you, Mr Gove? It all has a a ring in post-Brexit Britain. So, inherit the wind, black and white, and with stars many today have never heard of, but it has transcends time. It's intelligent, well-acted cinema. And I think, as
2: a movie fan, what else do you want? Neil. Thoroughly enjoyable. And a, and a film I hadn't seen before, Spencer Tracy, as everybody has said, is superb. And the defence lawyer and he and Frederick March is the prosecution of the bulk of the dialogue. And it doesn't disappoint. Uh, originally play, a play by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee and adapted by Nedrick Young and Harold Jacob Smith. I'm going to give writers more credit. Every little helps.
1: They're all dead,
2: Neil. They don't need your credit. <laughs> Writers need credit. <laughs> uh, the wordplay between Drummond and Brady is great fun and very witty Brady says at one point, now we find ourselves on opposite sides And Drummond goes, well, that's evolution for you Gene Kelly as as said before, is superb as the hard-bitten journalist It's the duty of a newspaper to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable And At which point Brady turns around and says, I don't like that man I love the fact that the courtroom was populated by people waving fans to keep cool, donated courtesy of a funeral para, except for the defence who didn't get any of them. Ernest Laszlo's cinematography is superb, capturing the claustrophobic courtroom in particular, and Claude Atkins, known mostly for his roles as a thug or a villain or a hard-nosed cop, is terrifying as Reverend Jeremiah Brown. The most emotional moment for the film for me was the small part played by Noah Beery, the farmer whose son died and couldn't go to heaven as he wasn't baptised, a cruelty inflicted on him by Reverend Brown. When he stands up to offer his farm as collateral for the bail, Drummond renews his efforts to win the court case. There's so much to like in this film with Spencer Tracy as his mischievous best, and I didn't get the McCarthyism link. I wasn't really thinking that well i I was more shocked about how one hundred years later after the actual trial, parts of America are still rejecting Darwinism. This is a great film uh, absolutely brilliant. well done Graham no, good choice.
0: I, I, I was so cheered up when i when I started watching. I thought. Oh, I hope this is going to be good. Oh, this is great. Oh, look at that. That's fabulous. (laughs) Oh, did he say that? Oh, my word.
3: Yeah,
1: I just thought it was good. Well, we've all liked it up to now. Let's see if Phil can bring us down.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I won't, Jeff. I really like this one. So I'm I'm really glad you've all gone before me because I'm glad you've all explained the intricacies and the subtext because whilst it's... I, I think it's a film that's both really straightforward and really complicated at the same time. So... You've explained all that. I won't go into it. I really did enjoy it a lot. There were three kind of things I wanted to touch on. Um, It's got really complex arguments, but they're told in an elegant way. And it doesn't end with a simple bow wrapped up at the end that kind of says this is the solution. It it accepts that they're difficult conversations, and it, it really handles that argument well. You've all mentioned the second one. I'm going to say it again anyway. The back and forth between Spencer Tracy and Frederick March is joyous. They are brilliant. They just spit vitriol at each other whilst chewing scenery, sweating their shirts off, and there's this undercurrent of their past friendship as well. I loved the sweating in the courtroom, by the way. I, <laughs> I, I read up on the history of the Scopes Monkey Trial, and I believe they actually had to move that outside because it was so hot. Really? Blimey. They, they talked about it in the film, but they didn't actually do it, probably because mm. it would have created a, a more difficult difficult situation with the sets. Mm. And finally, the thing that I loved the most is the photography Ernest Laszlo has done an amazing job with this crisp black and white image where, and I sort of watched bits of it again, I could not find a scene where anybody was out of focus. Everyone is in focus at all times, or at least I know it's a long film. I didn't go frame by frame, but I was mesmerized. Like, seriously, there were bits of the film where I was like, what, everyone's in focus at all times. And I was, I don't know how he did that.
0: was he he shooting it from half a mile away or something
3: (laughs) i don't know like it's i honestly i was mesmerized i thought it just looked beautiful and you have like these courtroom scenes with 30 40 people in there if you scan your eyes around the image everyone is clear and i guess
2: everybody was involved all the time weren't they that's a. I mean, it's 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 not something a cinematographer generally does, do they? They try and try and close it into one into the person who's talking. This is the person you should look at this moment, and this is and then this person. But I yeah, With Spencer
0: Tracy, you don't need that.
2: No, <laughs> because you don't. Your eye's
0: just going to yeah. be drawn. It's like, yeah. it's like watching the Rolling Stones. You just you, keep your eye
1: on. Like,
2: even when them. anybody else is talking, you're still watching Spencer Tracy, aren't you?
1: Yeah. yeah. What, what did you think <laughs> of Gene Kelly's performance, Phil?
3: Oh, yeah. No, I thought he was really good. What you said, actually, about the three leads being sort of head and shoulders above the others, I hadn't thought about that, but I completely agree with what you said. I'm not sure I've seen Gene Kelly not dance in a film. (laughs) Okay. Um, No,
1: he's he's done a couple, but they're not hmm. memorable.
3: Yeah, no, I thought he was really good. I thought for him, you've all mentioned scenes, but there was a scene where they have like a march where like the, the, the whole village is kind of marching through the street and mm-hmm. he's kind of there commenting on it quite snidely i thought that was probably his best moment
1: yeah no no it's great i mean it's a wonderful literate film inherit the wind if you've never seen it check it out okay i'm up next with my fair lady warner brothers takes pride in announcing special selected engagements of my fair lady
4: What about your boast that you could pass her off as a duchess at the embassy ball, eh? I'll say you're the greatest teacher alive if you can make that good. I'll bet you all the expenses of the experiment that you can't do it. You know, it's almost
2: irresistible. The 1964 Best Picture Oscar winner, and the type of big budget musical they certainly don't make anymore. Based on George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, first stage in 1913, the film stars Rex Harrison as the chauvinistic and arrogant Henry Higgins. Now I get why you chose it, Jeff. Professor Higgins <laughs> offers a wager to his friend, Colonel Pickering, played by the wonderful Wilfrid Hyde-White, that he could improve the speech of a Cockney flower girl to the point where he could pass her off as a duchess. The bet is made, and poor Eliza Doolittle, played by Audrey Hepburn, is about to be put through a linguistic hell. Will she stick with her training and pass the test? Sir so Jeff... Did you pick a musical because it's the nearest you could get to Thank God It's Friday?
1: (laughs) Sadly, no. I would have loved to have. You guys would have loved it if you have never seen Thank God It's Friday.
2: Uh, I'm not watching it. uh, I
1: picked My Fair Lady because I do like musicals, and it's one of those films I kept missing over the years when it would turn up on TV, usually on a holiday. Having now seen it, I'm really glad I didn't catch it way back when. Watching on, the, on TV in those days would have meant a 4-3 pan and scan ratio with flat sound. So much of the opulence of the movie would have been missed. I, of course, used physical media of my weapon of choice, and I picked the 2014 restored print in magnificent 235.1 and 7.1 sound, used mainly for the songs. The result was as close as I could get to recreate in the cinema experience, and the result is spectacular. You get Director George Cukor's original intent and two things that would have been lost now stand out. The sets, all amazingly recreated in Hollywood, especially Covent Garden, which initially I thought was the real location, and the costumes. There are two that really stand out, Ascot and The Ball. Cecil Beaton deservedly won Oscars for his contributions to both. As for the performances, Rex Harrison, he does remind me of me, actually, gives an an (laughs) Oscar-winning performance as Henry Higgins, a role he owned on stage. And he's ably supported by such British stalwarts as Mona Washbone, Stanley Holloway, and Wilfred Hyde-White. As for Audrey Hepburn, she looks radiant, but I'm just not convinced by her cockney performance. And of course, as most of her singing was dubbed, the link sinking seems odd. Full credit, though, to singer Marnie Nixon. Also, I found it quite disconcerting that some of the characters just disappear from the movie where this story's not fully resolved. Quite impressive in a film that's three hours long. <laughs> for example, Jeremy Bett's character, of Freddie. What happened with him during that taxi ride with Eliza? Is that in the X-rated cut? And that's why <laughs> he's thrown out of the film. As for the theme of the film, the deception of uh, Eliza Doolittle... For me, it showed the shallowness of British society, which, to be honest, is almost as shallow now as it was then. The irony of this is Higgins sets out to prove how easy it is to deceive the conventions of English society, yet he's a part of it himself. In the final scene, he proves to be as guilty as he cannot move outside of the social mores he's created for himself and his bachelor life. Overall, My Fair Lady is a visual treat, and the songs, which I did know before watching the film, are all excellent. In the pantheon of musicals, however, this doesn't quite make the first division of Singing in the Rain or West Side Story, but it's quite high in the second division. Oh, and a final note. The song Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man is now my anthem. Oh, dear. (laughs)
3: Unironically as well, I imagine.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Darren? My interesting trivia for this one is that Wilfred Hyde-White was in the 70s Battlestar Galactica um, pilot, and he was also in the second season of the 70s Buck Rogers TV show, and I could do an entire show on the book? Yeah, and I could do an entire show on the Buck Rogers Season 2 TV series because it was (laughs) dreadful, but anyway... (laughs) Going into this film, um, I realised I've never watched it the whole way through. I've seen bits of it when it's on. And I think I think one of the things that really put me off about it was the whole Cockney stuff. You know, that, that, always, that always puts me off films, quite frankly. And I also think as well, because I've actually not seen it, that I actually had a, a preconceived notion of what this film was actually all about and, it, and its main sort of themes and, and message as well. But I'll get to that in a moment. First up, the, the, the good stuff. This film looked absolutely spectacular. I mean the, the, the sets, the costume, there was a real sort of old school extravagance about them, but they looked absolutely stunning. And and some of the scenes were an absolute delight to watch. I mean, the, the race course scene, I, I think, was excellent. The way it looked, the performance of it, the sort of you know, and the, the you know, the satire on the sort of like the, the upper classes on, on, on in that scene, I thought were absolutely excellent. It was also you know really funny when Eliza's basically telling the story about a, a family, and one of the members of the, of a family killed another, but she says it, I think he'd done her in. Just things like that. I, I thought that whole scene was absolutely great. And some of the songs that I really liked as well, some of them are really iconic. But the problem I had with this film was it was such an absolute drag at times. I mean, it's it's three hours, which I am not against, uh, you know, if the film's you know, worthy of that. But there were some scenes in this film that just went on and on. There were some scenes where I'd, I'd actually got what the scene was about and they just kept seeing just going on, you know, just sort of like re- repeating it. like the whole thing when we're going on the bet. I, I, I just felt wanting to shout, you know, get on with it. I've got the point of what this scene's all about. Move on, you know, move on with the story. It was just so absolutely slow and, and just sort of, you know, long. And, and even some of the songs just seemed to go on for an eternity, I mean I'm I'm getting married in the morning seemed to you know I don't I don't recall that song being that long, but it just seemed to go on and on. The thing that I I was really disappointed with was the overall meaning or or message of the film because I've always assumed that what would happen is this film that the twist would be that Eliza would basically try to integrate herself with the upper classes and that like them, but ultimately she would prove that she just had as much worth as them. And, and you know, and that she, you know her basically hard-working life, that she she would prove that she was, like, you know, the better of, of them, over the snobs and the upper classes, that she would hold her own and sort of, like, you know, come out of this with a, a, a whole new confidence. And if that's what it actually was, then, then I totally missed it. But the fact that it is, that she goes back to the Rex Harrison character for for whatever reason, whether it's going to be a relationship or what, and, and his character, who... who being absolutely so vile like a lot of the characters in there i just i just didn't like the actual overall sort of message and feeling of it i i, I didn't think eliza got sort of like the um the triumphant um story that i was hoping for. i like these sort of films that to, are, are basically uh, the underdog the working class they're the ones that basically win out over the upper classes but they're the one that have the class in the end you know whether it be films like you know Pretty Woman or or Trading Places or something you know films like that, and this one didn't. it just didn't sit well with me. And and as I, as I understand it, the original play has I probably would have liked more because I think Eliza has a lot stronger ending. She comes out of this you know a stronger person and more sort of re- resilient. You know she she kind of owns the situation that she's in. The ending I, I was just kind of just like just just hated it. I've got to say uh, that. Uh, tied to the fact that the film took so long to get anywhere I just didn't like this at all Good, wonderful looking film, great songs, but the overall film I, I was not a fan of at all Do
1: you think that uh, and I understand what you, where you're coming from with the training places, but she is accepted in that society in the end for example, she goes round to Rex Harrison's mother, now had she still mm-hmm. been the Cockney girl the, the mother would have thrown her out but she's accepted for for who she is. Then, so rather than getting one over on society, she'd actually become part of that society. Is that perhaps what you didn't like about it, Darren?
4: I think I think I, I didn't like the fact that the the overall premise was that the upper classes were the better people. That, that you know that that's kind of what I yeah that, that that's kind of what I got out of it. And that she was being accepted in, into that. I, I I like the idea that she went through all that. And she found her own strength, and own wealth, and that she that she found that she was the better person. Because you know, because of the fact that she's had to sort to of like survive and fight, and that is the sort of thing I would have liked. Not the because she can emulate them and it should be accepted that way.
1: Okay,
0: uh, that's definitely because uh, I've seen that the play, and that's definitely the feeling you get with the original play. It's more about. The upper classes have all these opportunities and gifts and things given to them and when you get somebody who's very intelligent like eliza is in the play she's able to surpass them all she needs to do is get some of the key components and people to think she's upper class and then she can have her her own life and make her own life and how ha- the whole play is all about how shallow uh, the british class system is it's quite a critical play i think um it's also hysterically funny but i'll talk
1: about that in my review which you know lead into
0: well, well i it into myself yeah this is a a very different experience for me seeing a film that i'm familiar with but looking at it with a critical eye rather than having just having it on in the background i've seen this film many times i'm still not a fan i have Heard the album a million times when I lived at home. My parents loved this movie. I can remember my mother telling me that she had seen it three times in the first month it was on at our local cinema. Yes, it's beautiful. The songs are great. The choreography is exceptional. The sets are a work of art. And as you've said, Jeff, particularly the Covent Garden recreation. But it's not for me. Uh, I think I've said it many times that musicals are not my jam and this is one that just drives me up the wall. Sexist. I, I find it really hard to sit through 170 minutes of this film and I was willing myself to stay awake at the two hour mark. I might have dozed off through Jeff's favourite, why can't a woman be more like a man? It all gets a bit fuzzy for me towards the end. I adore Audrey Hepburn. She really is exceptional in this. A true glamorous movie star of the old school variety. I loved her in Blake Edwards' Tiffany at Breakfast at Tiffany's uh, and How to Steal a Million but in this I just find her annoying for the most of the time. Like uh, darren said it's the it's the accent that got me thing it just gets really really annoying i mean when i was first married we went to see pygmalion the play the movie's based on at the old thick in bristol and it was brilliant lots of real proper belly laughs there was one particular scene with professor higgins on a balcony arguing with eliza who was down on the street level well, I don't think the audience stopped laughing for five minutes. It's a great play, very critical of the class system, but I really find this movie is an irritating snooze fest. Uh, move on, please, Jeff. I have nothing further to say. I know I'm going to get hate for this.
1: Yeah, it'd have been a different story if the male had played Henry Higgins. You'd be all over <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, uh, when actually, when Graham, when you say you enjoyed the play, you said it. So you're talking about Pygmalion. You're not talking yeah. about the My Fair yeah, Lady. Yeah. No, but... no,
0: the Pygmalion, the actual play. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. George Bernard Shaw's original play. Yeah, and it, it is a very different beast. Very different. There's no singing in it for a start. <laughs> but yeah, and it was just I think six. Actors on stage, minimal sets, and the character, the young lad who fancies Eliza,
1: Freddie. Freddie. Freddie
0: is hysterical. He's he when we saw it, he was like uh, Tim, nice but dim, and all the jokes were just brilliant, brilliant. He comes and Eliza just plays him, just completely plays him through the play. It was fabulous.
3: Okay, Phil, you're up. Yeah, so for me, I went on an absolute roller coaster ride watching this film for various reasons, and I've written a huge, massive essay that I'm not going to go over in this. I'll try and be a bit more succinct. If you want to read it, it's on my blog. But
1: yeah, and it's I a really could... good, it's a really good article I've read. It. Mm. I would recommend. Yeah, me book. too.
3: I honestly just couldn't. I was thinking about it for hours. Now I can't say that I enjoyed the film but I was thinking about it for hours and I probably could talk about it for ages. So for some context, this is up till now, I'd not seen any of the films we're talking about. This is the sort of film that was always on in the background, but I never watched it. My wife loves it. My wife loves musicals and she's watched it lots and lots. And when I said that, you know, this had been picked and we were going to watch it, we got a DVD out and we sat and watched it together and I felt under pressure because she loves it. And my lesson for the day is do not go into a film with an assumption of the plot based on other adaptations. And I'm the 90s kid, so I think, is it She's All That or something like that is is the 90s variation. So I had this weird misconception that Pygmalion as a musical was about love transcending social divides. It isn't that. (laughs) 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 It's not even remotely that. And I kind of nearly ruined a three-hour film because my brain was just constantly doing this heavy lifting about, hang on, what? What is this about? What's going... This is mental. Like, what? What? And honestly, with the pressure of my wife humming along to the songs (laughs) across the way, I was just... Properly just, I couldn't get my head around it. And and it's a musical, right? And it's, um, when was it released? In the 50s, 60s? 60s. Before. So I expected oh. it to be, you know, lovely and nice and happy and good things and stuff. But what's it about? It's about class structure and social divides. It's a scathing attack on how people treat each other based on those divides. It's about the misogyny that women face in those class structures and in general, the view of men that they are better than women. It has a strong woman trying to make her circumstances work for her in the confines of the 1912 society. And Darren mentioned it. There isn't a happy ending. She's got a choice of pretty bad, worse, and mmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and she, you know, what, what Darren said about there's it's not a happy ending, It's as happy as 1912 society could possibly be based on this representation of it because she had a choice of marrying an idiot who just loved her after seeing her. She had the choice of going back to Rex or she had the choice of going back to who she was, really. I mean, I'm not sure that there was much else for her. So I was bamboozled at the end and just kind of turned to my wife and she was like, yeah. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? <laughs> um by today's standards as well. Henry Higgins is vile. He's a horrible, yes. horrible man. Judge huh? too harshly. Let's
1: not judge too harshly. No, no, he that's why I
3: said he by today by <laughs> today's standards, Jeff. If you met somebody today who behaved like Henry Higgins, he is a hideous man. The Boris and, Johnson. Uh, Luckily, my wife doesn't read my stuff or listen to this stuff, so just don't <laughs> tell her All right. <laughs> um, she didn't even, after I'd spent all this time thinking about it and I sort of wrote my article and stuff, and I said, you, you, we, I'm happy to talk to you about it now because she'd asked at the end of the film what I thought. And she went, mm, no, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say because I don't want you to ruin it for me. <laughs> The other thing I would say as well, and I won't go into it a lot, but actually the story of the making of this film is amazing. It's phenomenally interesting. I'd suggest reading about it as well. So the whole thing about Rex Harrison and what's Mary Poppins' actress? Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews, Andrews, yeah. So so the Julie Andrews had the role in in the the original plays and stuff. All of that stuff is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy it the most, but do you know what? It got me thinking the most, and I think... If you're interested like you know, read a bit about how it was you know came about and brace yourself and plug yourself in oh and the songs are i have to admit the songs are brilliant and really really catchy yeah, um especially I, one <laughs> the, so for me it's not the best song but the one again where i was reeling watching it going like i can't believe like this like is this satire what is this about is when the help In Henry Higgins' mansion, are singing about how, oh, poor Henry Higgins, he's so hardworking. He's so poor man. He's had to do so much effort, and it's all being sung by the maids and the butlers. (laughs) I'm just Mm. like mind blown. But I didn't like it. (laughs) I did, but I do. I'd love talking about it, but I'm not sure I could watch it again.
1: Hmm. Well, there's a review like none other. Um, (laughs) Neil, pass that.
2: Well, I have to say I'm a big fan of this one. I, from my revulsion of the sociopathic Henry Higgins to Wilfred Hyde-White as the foil to Higgins' arrogance. Uh, Audrey Hepburn is wonderful, has been said before, as Eliza, apparently she walked out when they were told they were going to have to dub her voice as it wasn't strong enough. In true Hepburn fashion, she returned the next day and apologised to everyone for causing such a fuss. There but, is,
1: by the way, some of her singing in the film. There is one song yeah, that they didn't dub.
2: I, do wonder what the Julie Andrews version would have been like. She played, as uh, Phil, Phil mentioned, she played Eliza in the stage version opposite Reg Harrison. She had to accept a minor role in some other musical called Mary Poppins. I suppose she won <laughs> in the end. And Never a Best Actress it. Oscar as well. Uh, Stanley Holloway is Eliza's father and a commentary on the dangers of Southern wealth. The music of Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe, with additional music by Andrew Prevue, I mean Previn. Cecil Beaton's costume designs, apparently around 1,500 costumes he had to create. The sets are wonderful, the song's iconic, and I'm happy to sing any of them to you. Join in if you wish.
1: Well, I've got a song. I'll tell you which one I want you to sing, Neil.
2: Yeah, I know. No. An excellent film, which won eight Oscars, including film director George Cukor, of course, and the best actor for Rex Harrison. But you do need to pause halfway through to rec- recreate the 60s intermission. We used to get them in the 60s. Go get a small tub of ice cream and eat it with a small
3: wooden spoon. <laughs> it's way too long otherwise. The DVD intermission was about ninety seconds, I think, and you I I'll
2: was... to switch the DVD off I think, <laughs> and have and have a, maybe a twenty-four hour intermission, but well, it is ridiculously long, really, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Well, thank you for your review and recreation of the period, there, Neil. That—that <laughs> um, that was my fair lady, and as you know, there is now one song I'm humming constantly. And now, finally, to Darren with his choice, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo.
2: Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense.
0: What a film to end with. Vertigo is acclaimed by Sight and Sound. Critics Forum as the greatest ever made. Detective Scotty Ferguson, played by James Stewart, survives a harrowing incident which leaves him with severe vertigo. Unable to work as a policeman, he accepts a job from an old college friend, Gavin Elster, played by Tom Hellmore. The assignment is an odd one. Elster wants his wife followed and he is concerned there may be a growing problem with her mental health. Over the course of the next few weeks, Scotty follows Madeleine Esther, paid by Kim Novak, and gradually starts to fall in love with this strange, enigmatic woman. We will stop the synopsis there and urge anyone who hasn't seen this film to watch it for the first time before listening to our discussion. Darren, as
4: this was your first watch of this highly acclaimed feature, what do you think? I thought this was a masterpiece. I absolutely loved it. Um, it made me realise that I really need to sort of watch even more Hitchcock movies because I, I always enjoy them. But, but They're always sort of so well told and always imaginative scenes in which actually fit in with the story. They're not just there for showing off as a purpose to them all and, and absolutely wonderful. I, afterwards, I was thinking about the film, and the more I thought about it, but the even more um, I, I, I loved it. You know, it's, a, it's just really masterful storytelling all the way through. I just want to get this out of the way first. A lot of the twists in this film were, were spoiled for me because um, I'm a really big fan of the film from the 80s, Body Double, with Melanie Griffiths, which is an absolutely fascinating movie. Actually, I actually wrote a um, a piece on it once on Half-Guarded. If you want to search Dazzle and Body Double in there, you'll, you'll find it, and... I I always knew that Body Double was basically um, an erotic version of The Rear Window, but what what I didn't realise is that it also played heavily off the story from Vertigo. There's a lot of Vertigo story in that film, but you know, so I have to say a few of the things I, I saw coming because because I was so used to Body Double, but it, even so, I thought the film was absolutely outstanding. What gripped me as as well about this this film is these sort of detective stories from that era I often find really hard to follow. Uh, They're they're so convoluted and you see them from one person's point of view. And this one was something about it that I just found it really, really easy to follow. It just, you know, the the, the story, I I, I just the whole time I I was in there. And and one of the things that I I really liked is, as I thought about it after, is there were so many... Red herrings in this film, and and subtle, but it's in subtle clothes. Uh, but some of them were actually just sort of like you know they're like I say as red herrings. I mean, the, the Barbara uh Gel Geddes character, for example, I was absolutely convinced that she was going to have something to do with the conspiracy because of these like little sort of like looks that she would give and the, uh, little scenes that she would have that you thought you know she she's there's more to her, but there's something like you know that she's really working on, and it just turned out that that was her basically having an unrequited um, love for the for, for, for jimmy stewart in this film. Uh, you know, so, so that's something that I, I I found a really sort of like you know subtle way of playing with the audience. And one of the things I'm a big fan about in, in films is, is points of view. And I found this interesting that for so long in this film we were we as as like most detective stories, we were seeing the story through the eyes of Scotty Ferguson. But we kept seeing things that he, which was quite unusual for sort of thing, we kept seeing things that he wasn't. There were little things that were going on that we were privy to that he wasn't. And I mean, for the fact that when we find out what has actually been going on, when the big reveal is, um, we see it from Kim Novak's um, narration. But he, we don't see him seeing it. Normally, in these films you would sort of learn it as he does. But we're sort of ahead of him. We we know what's been going on, and he doesn't. But from that point on, it switches to her point of view. So during that time, there is stuff that Scotty is up to that we don't know about. So in a, in a way, we're sort of seeing the story from from Kim Novak's point of view. And of course, that comes a twist later on. Uh, you know, so so that sort of thing that playing around with, I just thought it was absolutely m- masterful. And also as a very incredibly downbeat and really, really open-ended ending that doesn't tie everything up into a nice little little bow. And and again, that, that's sort of something I, I love. I, I was just sort of, you know, just, just really taken with the, the whole story. I found it all sort of fascinating. If there is a complaint I would make about this film, there was a little bit too easy people falling in love with each other. You know, it's you know, and which I, I guess you I guess you could describe if you were sort of looking at it from now a point of view, you could say that that's a sign of um of toxic, uh, toxicity and people be, being obsessed and, and, you know, sort of almost like to a, to a stalker-like level and being really needy, you could say that. But, 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 sort of, you know, but the old-school romance thing, I thought, these people have barely known each other and they're falling for each other like this. It, it, that, that bit kind of just sort of took me out as slightly. But otherwise, I just thought it was an absolutely um, amazing movie. And I'm just... I'm kind of amazed and kicking myself. It took me so long to even even watch this film. I don't even know why I never sort of, you know, gave it a chance. But yeah, I, I was absolutely loved this film. Absolutely classic.
1: You, you spoke about body double there. Have you seen Brian De Palma's film Obsession?
4: Uh, I don't believe I have, no.
1: So that stars that was made in '75. That stars Cliff Robertson and Geneviève Bujold, and again you see the influence of Vertigo on on the Palm over there. I I would urge you to check that one out. That is as a piece of filmmaking, it's incredible, and it's definitely up there with Body Double.
4: Yeah, I'll check that out.
1: Okay, right, fair enough. Well worth a look at, Phil.
3: So this is the only film on the list that I'd seen all the way through before, multiple times in this case, and I'm completely happy to watch it again because it's an utterly brilliant film. I think it's Hitchcock's best. I think it will be talked about as one of the greatest films of all time for a long time to come, if not always, and I think... I mean, Darren's mentioned most of the things that I love about it, but the plot, it's one of those perfectly executed, complex detective stories that always makes you completely satisfied when you watch it because you always spot new things, but you also realise that everything is there in plain sight and you feel like the protagonist because you're always just, like, so close to working it out and you just need that little key so it's it's not the sort of thing that that's cheap and when the reveal happens you just go I would never would have got that like that doesn't I can't believe that sort of thing it's one of those things that when you watch it again you see little things that you go ah yeah that was there it was there all the time and it just makes you feel so satisfied as you watch it I think Jimmy Stewart is probably giving his best performance here And that is coming from a guy who loves "It's a Wonderful Life" and thinks it's the greatest Christmas film ever made. But I think Jimmy Stewart is giving his best performance. He's he's against type as well. I think really for Jimmy Stewart, he's his intensity and his obsession is really dark, and he didn't often do that in in films. Unless Jeff's going to correct me and give me about half a dozen that he does that in. I I Um, will
1: mention a couple. Don't you worry.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And. I think Kim Novak matches him as well. I have never, ever seen Kim Novak in any other film. I've only seen her in this. Uh, she epitomizes the Hitchcock leading lady so well, and she plays the mysterious Sven of with aplomb. I must, can only assume Alfred got upset with her over something because I can't believe that she wasn't in any of his other films. She is just so good. And my favorite thing is probably the Bernard Herrmann score, the music. Because honestly, who knew that following a car at a seemingly sedate pace in San Francisco could be so stressful? Yeah, I love it. It's it's a great, great film.
1: Couldn't add anything to that. That was brilliant. All right, let's bring it
2: down a notch. Neil. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's a classic. And as I said before, and, and I love the way the film, especially the music, drags you into the story. The whole thing oozes style against Hitchcock's psychological shocks. It's a disturbing masterpiece with twists you don't see coming, and the music, as as Phil just said, is wonderful. Bernard Herrmann does a fantastic job, as does Robert Burks with the cinematography. And Jimmy Stewart giving an incredible performance. Sure, he's he's done creepy people before, but his treatment of Judy Barton is beyond creepy. It's horrible. It's endlessly fascinating with a perverse sort of disturbing power. To give any of the plot away would be a disservice to one of the greatest films ever made. I'd leave it there. It really is that good, and I think that too many people have already said everything about this film. You can carry on reading things about this film and, and theories and such like till the, uh, till the till the end of your days, I reckon. this is uh, It's a uniformly classic film.
0: Yeah, well, everybody's heaping praise on it, yeah. Uh, it's not only an excellent film, but a lesson for all would-be directors on how to make a film, how to put one together. I must have seen this film half a dozen times it's great what a wonderful cast brilliant story and enough twists and turns to keep you engrossed up to the last shot (laughs) the last shocking shot the running time says under 28 minutes but it flies by in what seems like half an hour am i gushing i think i'm gushing okay um i love this movie um i loved it the first time i saw it late one evening in the 70s i think I've owned it on more formats than I care to remember. The setup is perfect. Not only the introduction of why Scotty has vertigo, but we also have the meeting with Esther um, to discuss his wife's strange behavior. And then we're off down the rabbit hole. Here we go. I'm not going to give anything away either in this review. Just to say, if you haven't seen it, I really envy you because watching this movie you are in for a treat hitchcock at his best the pacing is what really attracts me to this movie it's so well done with each part of the puzzle being revealed as the plot unfolds i was completely lost the first time i saw this film but in a good way you are constantly scratching your head going on who is that and what's she doing there and what happened there and and then it all becomes clear and you're left open mouthed, realising that Hitchcock has pulled you into a world and led you down the garden path. Is that vague enough not to give any plot points away? Anyway, the film's 64 years old and feels like it was made yesterday. A lot of film reviewers say this film has a timeless quality about it, and usually that's just hyperbole. With this film, it's just a fact, like the existence of gravity... See what I did there? Gravity, Vertigo, Timeless. Uh, (laughs) Well, we often talk on this podcast about films that should show, not tell. There is a sequence in this movie where there is no dialogue for 12 minutes. Hmm. But you know exactly what's happening. Really impressive stuff. The dialogue is functional, not flowery. The cinematography is exceptional with beautiful wide-angle shots of, of San Francisco As everybody said, the music is haunting and the acting is top notch. It's a gem, a real gem. Just do yourself a favor and go and watch it. It's great.
1: Okay. Now, at the start of this review, I did say if you haven't seen it, go and watch it before listening to this. And to be fair to everybody else, they've not given the game away once. I'm going. You're going to. I'm going to. If you haven't seen it, go. I seriously urge you to go and watch it before. Uh, following on with this. Anyway, firstly, a big thank you to Darren for choosing this film. Uh, Vertigo is one of my favourite films and I always love a chance to watch it. I think it's Hitchcock's greatest triumph. It's a dark, I mean, a very, very dark meditation on love and obsession. It's full of images that are circular as well as the events that are circular and destined to repeat themselves. And in fact, and this isn't my theory, I read this and it's always played on my mind. You never see James Stewart escape from hanging off the roof yeah, at the start of the indeed. film. Indeed. How yeah. did he get off?
2: Yeah, what are the exactly. chances
1: are that he could have fallen, and this is his death dream, destined mm. to repeat throughout eternity. Anyway, let's put that dark thought to one side. There are no heroes in Vertigo. The closest to a nice person is Midge, played by future Dallas star Barbara Bell Geddes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she,
1: she was what, sorry? J.R.'s mum. Well, I knew she was in Dallas, but I never saw it, so thank you for that. Yet she's also obsessed, but she's obsessed with the James Stewart character, Um, but yet she knows the point in the film when she has to walk away. All of the others, all of them, are motivated by greed or rather creepy compulsion, all directed in a style, with a few 50s melodramatic moments aside, that is as fresh today as when it was first released. A question that fascinates me about the movie and which I raised in a brief presentation before a screening a Vertigo a few years ago is why is it so popular with critics? And I think the answer is because it's the ultimate movie about cinema and our voyeuristic compulsion with the medium. Let me explain. In the first section of the film, Scotty is following Madeleine around San Francisco, falling in love with her from afar while we are watching him watching her. Scotty's watching of her is like our love of movies. You could be watching a favourite film for the first time and it stays with you forever. So when he meets Judy, he wants to recreate Madeline as much as possible. Isn't that how we watch movies? We're always looking for what excited us when we started wanting to rec- recreate that experience. That said, thankfully movie watching doesn't end as badly as Vertigo, and there's a spoiler for you. Now, as for performances, and Phil mentioned about James Stewart, He does, in the 50s particularly, have this psychological fascination in a lot of his characters. If you look at films like Winchester 73, Bend of the River, or Rear Window, I mean, these are fairly dark characters, although not as dark, perhaps, as here. As for Kim Novak, I agree again there as well, Phil. She's just brilliant. And if you like this, See Her in Bell, Book and Candle, another film she made with James Stewart at the same time. And she just had a wonderful talent. And by the way, Bell, Book and Candle was the film that inspired Bewitched. She just had a wonderful talent, a wonderful comic talent. And it just sort of fell away as her career progressed. Anyway, back to Vertigo. Every time I see this movie, I learn something new. And as I said at the beginning, it is a dark film, but also an exhilarating one and worthy of all of its honours. So that's it. Five classic films reviewed and in my opinion the best
4: was last. Okay everybody we've uh, discussed the films. What's everybody's selection for their favourite film of the month? Neil? Vertigo. Graham? Yep, Vertigo. (laughs) Uh, Jeff?
1: Yep, has to be Vertigo. Yeah.
4: I'm gonna go with Vertigo. and um, Phil, are you gonna break the trend?
3: Uh I'm gonna say Vertigo, but just for you know, having a bit different if I was gonna pick one of the films I hadn't seen, I'd say Inherit the Winds. But Vertigo yeah. is yeah, the best film.
1: We could all be sight and sound critics. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So, gentlemen, I can
0: safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can.
1: Hopefully next month we'll have some cinema films to discuss. Fingers crossed.
2: I wouldn't mind watching and reviewing. No, I'm not going to watch and review, thank God it's Friday. What did you put that there for? (laughs) (laughs) That's not what I I wrote. And to everyone else.
4: Thank you for listening and goodbye and listen out for the next edition of Darren's Dash coming soon.